Hello, everybody. This is Josh Levitsky and Roz Manon for our September edition of AJT Highlights. Hope everybody had a great summer. And we've got a number of excellent papers to review for the September AJT issue. I wanted to first mention, because we sort of ended this, the last pet podcast with a question about giving us feedback. And um, we've uh, looked into this, and I think that we think the best way is to reach out to us on Twitter, on AJT's account, at AMJ Transplant. Uh, that's probably the best way. You can also rate the podcast directly on the podcast app by the star rating. And only give us five. We don't want oh, fours. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Make sure it's fives, because if it's lower than that, we... We have to be doing the podcast anymore. <laughs> no, but we've we've heard great things from people, but it's definitely we wanna we wanna hear more and um you know the opportunity to do something different with the podcast. Um any anything you could think of that could help us just keep going with this. And also you can email us, Roz and I directly too, um, if that works for you and we'll respond back and take your feedback. So so I'm going to go over just the list of the editor's choice uh, picks for September in the order that we're going to be discussing them today. Uh, Roz and I decided to um, break them down uh, with me going first and then Roz going second instead of going back and forth this month because um, my papers really focus on a universal theme of of increased risk donors. Um, and there are three papers uh, and that address this and an editorial and a couple additional CDC papers um, that address that. So it's gonna be a kind of a theme. And then Roz will um, go into her papers. So the, the papers that I'm gonna be doing, the first is uh, risk factors for multidrug resistant organisms among deceased organ donors. Uh, by Anessi et al. And um, that's also followed up with an editorial by Daniel Call. Um, a very nice editorial. The second one is the impact of U.S. Public Health Service increased risk deceased donor designation on organ utilization. This is by Sapiano at the CDC. And there are a couple other CDC articles this month that go along with increased risk donors that I'll I'll refer you to. Um, so there's actually three papers from the CDC in the September issue, which is nice to see. And then um, finally, a, uh, a uh, brief communication on uh, single centers, transplantation of kidneys from hepatitis C infected donors, hepatitis C negative recipients. This comes from the Methodist group. So I'll be talking about that. And then Roz will be doing a basic science paper on entitled a clinically relevant murine model unmasks a two-hit mechanism for reactivation and dissemination of cytomegalovirus after kidney transplant by Zhang et al with a um, editorial uh, on this to follow that uh, that which you'll discuss and then a clinical science paper called seg uh, entitled cytomegalovirus prevention strategies and the risk of BK polyomavirus viremia and nephropathy by Reichig et al. with another um, editorial to follow that. And I think, uh, oh, then you also have a brief communication 
on the changing landscape of live kidney donation in the United States from 05 to, 0, uh, to 2017 by Al Amari et al. with also an editorial. So I got that all right, Roz, right? You're perfect. Okay. We, so we got a lot to cover. So let me uh, move right into the first paper, which is um, entitled Risk Factors for Multidrug Resistant Organisms Among Deceased Organ Donors by um, Judith and Nessie et al. This comes from actual, actually uh, four centers in Philadelphia that collected data together, which was really nice to see a local collection of centers in one city pooling data together to answer some uh, questions about multidrug resistant organisms and the donors. Um, the premise behind this is that uh, we know that donors can carry infectious organisms. And one of the most concerning is having a multi-drug resistant organism that could be transmitted with the transplant that is very difficult to, to treat in the recipient. The issue is, is that sometimes these infections are not found until after the donation has occurred, which makes the idea of being able to predict a higher risk uh, patient for having a, it's MDRO, I'll use that acronym, multidrug resistant organism, having an MDRO uh, very attractive. We were to be able to take a donor and, and without positive cultures yet, but say this is a high risk patient for having an MDRO, it might um, help us modify our post-transplant immediate care on the recipient because of this issue. So that was the goal of this study was to combine four transplant centers in Philadelphia. This was at Penn, Temple, Hahnemann, and Albert Einstein, and collect all of the data on drug-resistant organisms in their donors amongst all of their transplant recipients. And the MDROs that were considered were MRSA, VRE, extended spectrum, cephalosporin resistant, enterobacteraceae, it's a mouthful, but uh, that's uh, one of the concerning ones. Um, carbapenem resistant, uh, Enterobacteraceae, multidrug resistant Pseudomonas, and multidrug res resistant Acetinetobacter species. And so uh, these are obviously organisms that are difficult to treat. They pulled them into four major categories ones that had broad gram negative coverage and gram-positive gram coverage, and those that had gram, narrow gram-negative and gram-positive coverage, of course, um, with the idea being those would be more concerning if there was more narrow coverage to be able to treat the, it in the recipient if it were transmitted. So um, they had 440 organ donors that gave to at least one organ, at least one organ to a recipient. And of these 64, which is 15%, had an MDRO pathogen isolated from a hospital or OPO culture. So rare, but not common, sort of right in the middle, about 15%. And uh, the most common area for the bacterial growth was the respiratory tract, which is not surprising, about 76% having uh, a positive culture. Um, there were fewer in the blood about 11% in urine um, was also smaller. The most common organism was Staph aureus, uh, followed by a mixture of the others that I mentioned before. So they came up with a, uh, a model because um, they actually 
Well, they first showed that the longer you were colonized with an MDRO, the greater the likelihood of a of um, potential transmission. And but they came up with a model that took all of these uh, MDROs together and uh, had some clinical variables on the donor that were highly predictive of, of having an MDRO. The first was HCV viremia, which I think goes along with the, the possibility that these donors were injection drug use abusers um, that may have picked up infections, drug-resistant infections along with HCV. That was one theory behind it. But HCV viremia was a risk factor. A prior stem cell transplant, not surprisingly, um, was a risk factor, need for dialysis in the um, donor self. And this correlated with all or all recipients. And then there was also a increase in um, that were that was related to exposure to narrow gram negative antibiotics. So if you had uh, an infection in the donor, that was only a few antibiotics could treat or were sensitive to, then that uh, also correlated with an increased risk. And then finally, there was sort of a loose association, which I thought was interesting, with THC from marijuana being detected in the um, toxicology screen at the, in the donor with an increased risk of, of these pathogens. So needless to say, I can go to kind of the um, what the results were in terms of we found some risk factors, HCV viremia, stem cell transplant, a dialysis in the donor, a narrow uh, gram-negative gram coverage, um, length of time on where the culture was, was positive, and also the, the association with THC being correlating with MDRO. So I, th I think the, the, um, the editorial on this really kind of spelled out what is, why is this important? Um, and, and the statement made, this is done, uh, editorial is by Daniel Call at the University of Michigan, that, um, you know, with, the, with the, um, the MDRO infection rates increased with length of stay with 20% of the donors infected by a hospital day 10. So as, as when, the, when the donors were in the hospital a lot longer, the increase in, there was an increased rate of MDRO in the donor itself. So along with these other risk factors, the longer time a donor is in the hospital increases their risk, which makes sense. And so it's a little bit, I thought it was a little bit difficult to say what the, what is the end result of this. You could have a predictive score or predictive calculator and that, that might allow one to broaden coverage if there's a concern for an MDRO, be, you know, on the, very high alert for an, uh, a drug or a uh, resistant organ uh, organism transmission. Certainly more research needs to be done in this area, but I think it's, it was a really nice start to kind of get a sense of the risk factors, the things that are being transmitted and, and you know, come up with some way for centers to predict a little bit better who is going to have, uh, which donors are going to have these organisms that could potentially affect the recipient. Well, certainly it doesn't sound like they were advocating for turning down donors without, you know, I, I mean, I, I kind of looked this over per, more peripherally than you did. And, and it's interesting data. And I, you know, some of these infections are really problematic 
you know, at, at, at our own centers and, and we work hard to prevent them being transmitted. But I thought the editor was sort of on a positive note to say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And even, you know, a lot of us don't pay a lot of attention to how long a donor might be in a donor hospital. But it sounded like a more positive thing. Although I have to say these numbers are fairly, they're high. They're higher than I would have imagined. So yeah, yeah. very interesting, interesting paper. And, and great that we now have some published data to reflect on for, for future study. Yeah, certainly. And um, Daniel Call, the, the one who did the editorial, clearly we need multi-center data. Who knows if Philadelphia is, just has a, had a bad um, few years of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> or is this right. be extrapolated? And certainly regional differences in drug resistance are going to be important. So, okay. So I'm going to move on next to the next paper from the CDC, which is by uh, Matthew Sapiano and colleagues entitled Impact of U.S. Public Health Service Increased Risk. Uh, deceased, do- deceased donor designation on organ utilization. I thought this was a really interesting uh, paper that sort of goes over what the the label of increased risk donor, when that started, and what, well, both on center-specific, but also just nationally within the different organs, what are the utilization rates of these increased risk donors? Are they different than standard risk? and is this different by organ type, different by center type? Um, really getting at to the, the concern that um, increased risk donors may not be being utilized as well as they should be, you know, leading to discards of organs that could be used. And to try to understand who is doing this and where might we be able to target interventions to, to modify this practice. So. This all, uh, that was the premise of this, um, this paper. So they, they basically got um, OPTN data on the utilization of organs. Um, they separated risk adjustment models for both adult and pediatrics were kept separately. And they looked at heart, kidney, liver, and lungs. And they tested for a relationship between the increased risk donor categoriz- categorization and underutilization. So with the idea that which of these has a correlation between the IRD and under, un, underutil, underutilizing these um, organs. And of course, there was a lot of risk adjustment that had to be done with organ utilization because it may be that there's other factors that are related to underutilization in these donors that has have nothing to do with the the actual CDC increased risk. So they had to do, and they did an amazing job of of uh, risk adjusting for all of these that I that I won't go into. It's very complicated modeling and risk adjustment. But and they did also a center level model where they looked at where you know is this were their findings all of the uh, the finding the results was it co-localized in certain centers or hmm. not, or was, it, was this a universal issue? So basically, they I think the, the best table in here to focus on is kind of the summary of results, which is table five, and they go through adult, pediatric, and heart, kidney, liver, and lung. And um, the first thing to know is, is that there are certain 
types that had no difference in utilization between increased risk donor and standard risk donor. Um, this was again after uh, risk adjustment, and that included adult heart, adult liver, and then pediatric kidney, liver, and lung. The ones where there were significant differences, and I, uh, at the end, I'd like to hear it maybe from you, Roz, a, a comment about this was adult kidney. There was um, a significant difference in utilization between the IRD and SR, SRD. Um, so much, much lower utilization in the increased risk donor with adult kidney. And, but interestingly, this underutilization was driven by a subset of facilities. So it was very center specific or, or a number of centers were doing this routinely underutilizing these IRDs. And then for adult lung and pediatric heart, there was a difference in utilization between IRD and standard risk donors, but it did not seem to be center specific. It seemed to be more universal. And I think the lung, it kind of makes sense to me in that I know that, you know, adult lung recipients, you certainly want um, to put the best donor into those patients who are very sick. It sort of makes sense to me that this would be kind of universal and maybe pediatric heart too, um, that it seems like universally the centers are nervous about, more nervous about using increased risk donors. Um, I was sort of curious um, about the kidney difference. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder if it's, uh, you know, a situation where, but it's centered. you know, right, it's, it's, well, I don't know, I'm looking at figure two. So if you're following along in the paper, yeah. or looking at these proportions, showing even some of, the, so region donor service area two is like all over the place. And, and that's probably because it's a broad group of programs all over the place. Region three is the Southeast. I mean, that's a long waiting list because my thought was, well, you know, in places that, you know, are worried about risk and, and have a big waiting list, they probably would be more less risk averse. Is this related to risk adversity? Is it related, you know, in the kidney, you have a buffer because you can say, oh, I'll pass on that donor and we'll give them a few more months on dialysis. Not that there's not death risk. Well, you, you can't do that with the other organs. It's interesting. And I like how they put out the low volume centers. They're kind of all over the place. It wasn't like I could look at this and say, okay, well, the answer is bigger waiting lists and, and they're less risk averse or... So I, I, I think this deserve. I don't know if, the, if there was an editorial or not. No, there wasn't. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of an, a great paper to sort of talk about with other, you know, within your own center to see. And this was a concern. This was a very definite concern um, when we came up when, and had to agree to disagree with the CDC guidelines uh, several years ago. Um, there was a lot of concern of organ discard. Obviously, it hasn't happened in the other organs, but... I mean, certainly, yeah, this kidney data is fascinating. Yeah, no, thanks for, for the comment. I think there's, to sort of answer your question about the labeling of increased risk donor, there's, there were a couple other uh, papers in the, to refer you to by the CDC in this September issue. I won't, I'm not going to talk about them. There's just not enough time. But um, the, the first one by Bixler et al. Um, deals with hepatitis B and C transmitted through organ transplant, you know, ones that actually got transmitted. So they go through what happens to those patients and they actually do really well. The ones that actually got transmitted, these are usually ones that are sort of in the window period where the NAT testing is negative and 
they get transmitted. Actually, these were Hep B and C. They were all basically put on antiviral therapy and did very well. So I think that helps decrease some concern about increased risk donors that they won't have a treatable infection, you know, especially with hepatitis C, being able to cure that, those fears um, should be diminished. And then there's another one on kind of quantifying the risk. I thought this one was really helpful by, by Jones et al. at the CDC, quantifying the risk undetected HIV, Hep B or Hep C in mm. terms of like, this was sort of a modeling, like how many days before from the time of the exposure to the time of the transplant, would you need to worry about HIV, Hep B and Hep C transmission, even though their NAT was negative, uh, meaning it just was too early. And they basically say for HIV, it's 14 days, Hep C seven days, HBV 35 days. And they mm -hmm. said, basically, if you know when the um, exposure was and the, tra and the transplant was, um, if you're beyond this point, your risk of having one of these infections was like less than one in a million. And this is nice because it may help modify the increased risk designation, which basically takes into account any increased risk activity within a year from the transplant. And mm -hmm. this is really saying it's really very much shortened to the time period right before the transplant where we should be labeling these patients because we have NAT testing and like I said, if you know the history of the patient, you really shouldn't have to worry about something two, three months before. So I thought that was also another one that was helpful, kind of going along the lines of addressing this increased risk donor. I'm sure there'll be more to come in terms of maybe redefining that, alleviating some concerns on the center, using these organs more. So yeah, and I'm still looking at that figure too. But um, <laughs> again, you know, I'm sort of thinking about you know, so in the DSAs, the organs especially for these lungs and hearts are probably not getting sent around and shopped around. And so, you know, you could say, well, is it, the, is it, is it a, a reflection of disease burden of that region in the donor? So, you know, okay, who's yeah. got the lowest one region eight, that's got all the people that are high risk. And, but I, I, I think it's more complicated than that. And you look at region two, it's all over the place. So, and it's again, more, uh, yeah. it's more like hypothesis generating than. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, Stay tuned. It'll keep us yeah. in business a little bit, I hope. And then one more quickly. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on this, but um, this was uh, the, the final paper I have is by Molnar um, et al. at Methodist in, um, in Tennessee. And the, the paper is entitled Transplantation of Kidneys from Hepatitis C Infected Donors to Hepatitis C Negative Recipients, a Single Center Experience. So basically, this is um, nothing really too novel because it's essentially taking patients who are viremic with hepatitis C, putting them into hep C negative patients. We know that from the thinker and expander studies that were the first trials that were reported of high success with curing the virus. Um, this really has the novelty here is that this is a, a real world single center practice and not in a monitored clinical trial. So this center and several others now are doing this as standard of care, mentioned on previous podcasts, um, the expansion of this practice. And um, they had, um, not surprisingly, excellent outcomes with their approach. And, and this center started doing this actually quite at the beginning of when antiviral therapy came out. And um, they had some they made a programmatic decision, which I think they've sort of regretted in a way, I get the sense that 
they were going to wait for a while um, until you know several weeks to start treating the patients, even though they knew it was transmitted. You know, all those patients did well in terms of the virus being cured, but they had a couple. Um, they had some BK virus that was at a and DSA that were at a higher percentage. I suspect maybe that was potentially related to the delay to the, the presence of viremia in the um, in the recipient for a longer period of time. Mm. And they had one they had one patient who had fibrosing cholestatic hepatitis C, which you really should never see as long as you're treating early. Mm -hmm. And so you know they they kind of modified their they have modified their approach to do this much earlier within a month of the transplant, which is kind of more what all centers are doing uh, that are doing this practice these days, um, just doing it right at the detection. And even some centers like Hopkins are prophylaxing the patients going into the transplant, um, knowing it's going to be transmitted, which makes the most sense to me. Um, if you can get insurance to cover it early on. That seems to be the big problem here. I mean, and, and I feel like, you know, using our center as an example, but this is not a commercial for UAB kidney transplant is, you know, we're, we we seem to have to, all these centers want to do this, but we have to restep, go reinvent the wheel in terms of this management. And um, I agree with you. I think the prophylactic, if I were the patient, that's what I would want on right. my... Um, but we do that I, for Hep B. We do that for CMV. Right, right. We're profiing everything else. We're pre preemptively monitoring if we use a, a PHS high risk. So you would think that that would make the most sense. But I think the the main issue is is these medications are expensive, and that's what I've always been told. That it's company by company. I think it's getting better. Um, and from the time that they started this to now, it's really rare to get an insurance turned down and. Um, you know, our, our center here in Northwestern, we're just starting to do these and we actually have hospital backup if there's a long delay because mm -hmm. I was worried about the same thing. But I, I think it, you know, I imagine the next few years we're going to, it's going to be more standard of care and there'll be, you know, preemptive prophylaxis instead of, you know, waiting until it's transmitted. But I think this paper is nice because it kind of shows a real world that it works in the real world and we should just do this sooner than they did. And they, they agree with that. So, mm -hmm. all right, Roz, I think you're up. Uh, well, since we've been talking about donors, I'll, I'll start off with my papers and thematically. And, and my first paper is by Fawaz Alamari from um, the Musali and, Seg and Segev um, Outcomes Research Group at Hopkins on the changing landscape of live donation in the U.S. from 2005 to 2017. And and you might recall some of these authors were involved in, in identifying living donor risk of end-stage kidney disease, which I think is the thing we worry the most about. And we all know that living donation has been falling over time, especially in, in certain groups like uh, African-American related donors, um, particularly with our understanding or potential understanding or misunderstanding of APOL1. But this paper really did a, a very broad retrospective analysis of nearly 80,000 living donors from 2005 to 2017 using SRTR data. And notably, um, it, when you look at the data, one of the things that, that jumped out at me in their results is that almost half of living donation now is living unrelated. So when I trained, and I'm a bit of a semi-dinosaur, I remember, I actually remember the first listing meeting 
that I went to where we talked about a wife donating to a husband and there was all this discussion of ethics. And so here it is, you know, flash forward 20 years later, half of the pool is, is living unrelated. And that probably also includes uh, paired kidney donation as well. And we find that when you look at the rates and you look at the breakdown between living related and living unrelated, it's really the living related rates that have been fallen continuously, whereas the living unrelated rates are increasing relative to the living related rates, particularly in donors under the age of 35 and over the age of 50. And But there are some... some um, race-related differences, and those are shown, um, I believe, in figure one, where they sort of look at the differences over time. And I can summarize it by basically saying, you know, in in African Americans, uh, these rates of living-related donation have fallen, and you can see sort of a a steeper uh, slope, um, very comparable to uh, whites. Hispanics are a little up and down, but again, unrelated donation seems to be doing the well. And these trends were really consistent across the donor service area, which is in figure two. I like looking at this figure. I think it gives you sort of a a sense about the geographic region. And again, note that the numbers on the vertical axis really differ. Some of these regions have long waiting times versus shorter waiting times in some of the other regions. And you can see the, the Again, some of that, you know, relates to the risk and concerns of risk, you know, not only for the living donor, but also, you know, wait times for the recipient. It looks like the high risk donors tend to be African-Americans that are young. I guess most of us would say, well, we know that. But I think it also helps to see it confirmed with national data. And this is in a time now where many centers, I don't want to say many, but, you know, informal surveys suggested that at least a quarter of of centers are instituting uh, APOL1 genotyping. So the author's sort of summary is, well, here's our data. And, you know, maybe we need to start thinking about these less risky donors, these over the hill people, the greater <laughs> the age of 50. We're not so bad. We're good for something other than giving that <laughs> advice. And, and, um, but I, and I think that's helpful. And I thought the accompanying editorial by Bob Steiner was really a, a really nice piece by him. I mean, who else has such an appreciation of living donation over his career? But again, you know, defining like I did, the paradigm has changed. You know, we used to worry, we worry about stones and isolated hypertension. But, you know, we've got to start and, you know, thinking about this in a different problem. And and so the old paradigm was worrying about hyperfiltration post-transplant, developing post-donation and stage kidney disease. But now we know that there are some phenotypes of patients, maybe genotypes too, that have increased risk. And that when Musali's paper said, okay, well, there's a finite risk, it's 2.5%. Well, the absolute risk may be higher depending on the high risk group. And there are some limitations in the study because there's not a lot about socioeconomic status and because that's not an SRTR. And obviously we don't have genetic information and we have no information about turndown rates either from this. This is just who was accepted so I, I think that this is a paper that kind of reminds us that we have to stop thinking about the old medical paradigm of, oh, they had a stone or three red blood cells in their urine. Should we do a biopsy and think about the potentials that, you know, middle age is not bad. You have a more defined risk. You've lived that far. You know, how do we, um, can we focus on pre-donation and stage kidney disease risk and, and identify that as the risk factor less than all these other little pieces of, oh, they're obese. Well, they're out. Well, what is really going to be their 
their ESKD risk and, and, and think about ways of incorporating this into our, you know, encouraging donation strategies and, and recognizing, obviously, the concerns for, for African-American race. I'm wondering if, uh, do you think that the, the change in the landscape is related to um, just donors getting older with more medical problems that we're starting to think about their risk? Or do you think it's, um, I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are as to why this has kind of changed over time. Well, I, you know, I think some of us, you know, I, I mean, there is a whole notion of there's the harm issue and then there's the issue of trying to get donors to want to donate and, and, and this disincentives that occur um, and that those disincentives may be disproportionate in different groups. And that's not the focus of this paper is, is disincentives. It, it's really looking at the overall, as they say, landscape. I think that it's always been in the back of your mind that if you're evaluating a living donor, it's do no harm. This is major surgery and, and you want the outcomes to be good. And so we developed all these, you know, re recommendations like don't use somebody with hypertension. Okay. Well, you can use somebody with controlled hypertension on one agent. Well, you use me. And if I have, if I, if I had controlled hypertension on one agent, you know, and uh, you know, how many more years am I going to live with my one kidney? Probably a heck of a lot longer than a, a 22 year old whose family all has hypertension and some people have proteinuria and ESKD in their, in their family history. And so it does kind of make you think, well, I better do a better, you know, I think people have to do careful histories and, and family histories and, and understanding that risk and that maybe we need to be thinking more about older, you know, middle-aged donors and, and these low risk patients that seem to do well that, yeah. you know, for donors over time. So I thought it was a much more sort of, I, I thought the, the editorial by, by Dr. Steiner really kind of coalesced of, of thinking more about the big picture of, of organ donation risk. Not, not, you know, saying, oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter. It matters in a big way. But how can we make this more practical and, and, and more useful to the community? And so there are risk calculators, as you know, that are available online. But again, it's hard when you, when you utilize them. Some of them are not necessarily relevant to the patient population, but looking at that literature more formally. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to transition now to a completely separate topic. And this is kudos to our infectious disease community of practice because they somebody seems to be following us on Twitter. But there's some there's clinical stuff in here, too. So um, and, and this may not apply necessarily to liver, but it is a, a big problem in, in kidney transplant. And that's the paper by Thomas Reichig and colleagues from uh, Pilsen uh, Medical School in the Czech Republic. It's called Cytomegalovirus Prevention Strategies and the Risk of BK, Polyomavirus Viremia, and Nephropathy. So, you know, BK is a scourge for us. There's no available treatment. People are viremic, probably, well, first of all, I think everybody's viuric, if you look, a lot of them, 80%. Uh, about 45% will get viremic, and then about 12 to 15% develop nephropathy and this disease is associated with the consideration of overimmunosuppression and there's no there's no FDA approved treatment but on a recent um, AST posting we all got into it with each other about how to manage it and then CMV we have prophylaxis and and again when I was a fellow in the dark ages we didn't have really great treatments and people died from this whether it was heart or lung or, or a kidney I spent a lot of time as a fellow running around to ICUs dialyzing people that were sick 
But the question is how these two interact. And I think somebody like me would say, oh, they're both, you know, they come go hand in hand because CMV is associated with, you know, reactivation in the setting of overimmunosuppression. But that's not really the case. And there's never really been good information about the interaction between VK infection and CMV uh, infection. And there have been contradictory small studies. It's not really been studied robustly per se. And so this group took two large, relatively large clinical trials looking at CMV management. One trial used standard CMV prophylactic therapy with valside and compared it to the preemptive strategy. And so preemptive means they're monitoring for CMV PCR. When they turn positive, they treat. And the second trial they had was a combat, you know, was either they were on val gangslikevir prophy versus val acyclovir prophy, and they excluded uh, donor negative, recipient negative patients. And in these studies, they apparently did BK serial monitoring. It looks like about every three months. And there is some imbalance in these groups, but the outcome measure was really to determine the rates of CMV viremia and infection a disease, I'm sorry, and then BK infection and BK disease. And I'll kind of cut to the chase. There's some very nice figures. Figure two shows you sort of like a Kaplan-Meier curve of viral events between BK viremia versus CMV. But the surprise of this whole story is that in patients treated with valcite, there was a higher rate of BK viremia. And that came as a total surprise. The hazard ratio was about 2.38, so it's significant. Their rates of disease and infection weren't necessarily higher than I've seen in post-transplant populations. But basically, their conclusion is, well, CMV prophylaxis with valcite is associated with, you know, almost double the risk of BK viremia. And so how do you put this in context and what does it mean? I think that there's a couple, you know, when we usually are doing these kind of BK studies or CMV studies, we we just kind of think about one disease and not the other. And so I would have thought this is all related to overimmunosuppression, but I think it definitely is more complicated than that. And they do cite some information that valcite in and of itself can be immunosuppressive. We know it can reduce and 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 cause bone marrow suppression, but they specifically stated that there was effects on T-cell proliferation and DNA synthesis that may affect it. You know, where the, there was very low risk of co-infection in these studies. Again, that may be related to immunosuppressive reductions, which were ongoing. But in the accompanying editorial by, by Dr. Pape, one of the key concerns about this to put this, you know, in a, in a less positive light is that the monitoring strategies really uh, introduce a methodologic bias um, because the study trials were not based on BK, they were based on CMV. And so the CMV detection strategies differed between both trials. And so it's possible that they overlooked or underdetected uh, CMV viremia, which may have a consideration. But interestingly, you know, he pointed out, well, you know, why are we making all this fuss? Maybe we should just do prophylaxis in the very high risk, the donor positive, recipient negative, CMV patients combination. And, and maybe in, in other high risk groups, we should be thinking about mTOR inhibitors or, or utilizing them. Um, I have to say that, that a lot of, you know, U.S. transplant centers don't do preemptive monitoring, um, you know, whether it's not cost effective. It, clearly, there are studies that have shown it is effective to prevent disease. But I thought this was an interesting paper pointing out, you know, some of the considerable, you know, things that we overlook. And so maybe one thought is, well, maybe we should be monitoring, if we're going to use valcite, 
preemptively as a prophylactic therapy. I mean, if we're going to use valsite as prophylaxis, maybe we need to be doing our BK monitoring a little bit more effectively or more frequently so that we can identify what's going on sooner and maybe have an impact. Yeah, it just um, it, it's sort of one of those studies that you don't know if this is something we've been missing all along or is just an isolated report that really further validation wasn't shown to be true, which which probably is what is needed because um, it does it doesn't make sense to everything that I know and have learned about CMV. It's usually CMV by viremia, uh, the indirect effects are to increase the risk of other opportunistic infections. So, Absolutely. But we like provocation in this field. We, we, we yeah. like calling people out. So uh, this is a good one. I, I think, yeah. you know, if you have to do a journal club at your, at your institution, we're giving you some fodder, folks, to, hey, I want to present this paper. I, I really would be interested in some feedback from the ID community in particular about what they, what they think. But, but speaking of, you know, clinging to past paradigms that overimmunosuppression is what leads to CMV reactivation, my final paper is by um, a group up your way. It's the um, uh, Zhang et al. This is the group with the, at uh, Northwestern, the research lab of Northwestern of Mike Abacasis's. This is a clinically relevant murine mouse model unmasking what's called a two-hit mechanism for reactivation and dissemination of CMV after kidney transplant. So just as some background, this, this group has been perfecting this transplant model and, and really identified as um, that donor alloreactivity, meaning host responding to recipient uh, MHC, i.e. rejection, is important uh, piece for CMV reactivation. But this time they have actually developed and it's not the, the surgical part of the model because that's been around for a while, but they actually have developed a clinical model shown in, in figure one, a preclinical model, incorporating both lymphocyte depletion and uh, CNI, calcineurin inhibitor, and, and corticosteroid therapy uh, in a transplant model and combining that with using donors that are latently infected with murine CMV. So they have a lot of experience in creating these lately infected mice, and they have great experience doing the transplant, and now they put this together with this immunosuppressive cocktail. And I don't want to belabor the, the point of the paper because we've been talking a lot today, but I would ask you to take a look at it. They study these transplants at 14 and 28 days. I can show you that, or I can tell you that um, this dissemination of CMV reactivation in the recipient occurs with and without immunosuppression, it's certainly a stronger when you add immunosuppression, but certainly with immunosuppression, it is even more astounding. And they're able to detect a virus in both the mouse, a mouse kidney, lung, and, and the salivary glands. Um, so immunosuppression does promote dissemination, but does not, it's not just there for reactivation. The non-immunosuppressed animals also reactivate and disseminate. Um, and they do some other outcome measures. They look at gene expression within the allograft and and demonstrate that there's a change in the transcriptional profile with immunosuppression, reducing alloimmune responses, and yet they have this high rate of infectious dissemination. There's a suppression of, of T-cell-specific responses, cellular responses. But interestingly, things the gene expression for things like uh, reactive oxygen species and mitochondrial dysfunction are not affected by immunosuppression. Uh, and they do some very kind of chic proteomic analysis and, and, and gene expression analysis 
that are in figure four um, for the gene expression. And I think the proteomic analysis is, in a, is on one of the following figures in uh, figure eight. So what does this all mean? And, and by the way, they also do a syngeneic model where they have DNA, they, they get uh, viral activation and, and dissemination as well. And they also reverse the combination to ensure that it's not a strain specific issue because these mice are a little funny. They're not funny like telling jokes funny, but they do some odd things. And so the BALB-C versus the, the black six stone recipients can act a little bit different from an allogeneic perspective. And I think importantly, what they're trying to show you is that reactivation does occur in the allograft. It's worsened with immunosuppression. But really, this, this um, ischemia reperfusion injury associated with the donor has some considerable mechanistic impact. It does lead to this. And so you can think about you know, strategies that may affect IRI injury in the immediate postoperative period, particularly when you have CMV positive donors, may be important and have some long-term impact to the outcome of the recipient in terms of reactivation of disease. There was, an, again, another short but very to the point editorial that um, similarly felt positive about this paper as I did that, you know, these results are somewhat profound because it's taking um, a new strategy. It takes a very kind of nice preclinical model, um, uh, identifying that ischemia reperfusion injury could be this trigger. Um, it brings to question, you know, is de delayed graft function important? Yes. Well, maybe this is a mechanism. And I actually don't recall if that's actually been looked at um, in a very direct fashion clinically. So if it has, just shoot me an email and show me the reference so I have it uh, for my own. But again, I think that you know, immunosuppression, yes, it's important. It's important in viral dissemination, but certainly it looks like um, delay this ischemic injury is important for reactivation. And I like this model too. It'll give folks a chance to see are, are there specific strategies? You know, we harp about using depletional induction and maybe that's not the boogeyman that we think it is. They could certainly tease that apart in this mouse model. Though this is labeled as basic science for the clinical folks, this is very readable very, you know, straightforward to understand, uh, very well written paper. So I would encourage the readership to look at it, even though it's as basic, you will not fall asleep. Yeah, it makes me sort of uh, think about additional benefits of machine perfusion strategies. Um, yes, you know, that's a great, yeah, absolutely. Know, just, uh, there's, we usually are focusing on the graft, but um, certainly an injured, an injured graft with damps and amps, etc. just that's that connection between injury there and viral reactivation. It, it makes a lot of sense, but it's well. That's a great. That's a great point too. And I think you know, as those technologies emerge, there you know, there certainly might be opportunity to think about if graph manipulation in terms of that, especially when you have these high risk. You know, you have these extensively damaged organs and concerns about donor reactivation that may mitigate the outcome you're hoping for. Great. Well, so, thanks, Roz. Yeah, I think, um, we, you know, we went on a little long, but these papers were really, you know, very involved and very important. And um, I think it required some extra discussion. Hope everybody was still with us along the way. And again, please give us feedback from uh, by, by Twitter or directly. And um, we look forward to talking again next month in reviewing the October issue. 
Hope everybody's well. Take care. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.